Scripture reading this evening is Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. understand lamentations the word itself means weepings his mournings and Jeremiah writes this in the context of Jerusalem's destruction and he pours out his heart here in great grief but his purpose is not merely to give expression to the grief of Jeremiah and God's people who saw Jerusalem destroyed and then the people get carried away in captivity, but also to remind the people of of Judah that this was from the hand of God. Don't look at the Babylonians, look at this as a hand, the hand of God, and he wants them to repent. So read it with that in mind. We read the first 32 verses of Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath, that is God's wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also when I cry and shout, He shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark. For the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people, and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. That's poison. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. Thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forget prosperity. And I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, 
because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that a man, for a man, that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. So far we read God's holy word. The text for the sermon is verses 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text we consider tonight is a beautiful confession of hope and comfort. As I said, the words of Jeremiah come in the context of Jerusalem's complete destruction. Judah had made herself entirely deserving of this. She had departed from the Lord. She had gone after the idols of the nations around them. She had simply trampled God's law underfoot, stealing and fornication and every kind of desecration of the Sabbath had gone on for years and years. God sent prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and many others to warn Israel about her sin, to warn them that God's judgment was coming. God sent nations like the Assyrians and then the Egyptians and finally the Babylonians with their fierce armies to take some of the land to steal from the, from the people of Judah. And yet Judah would not turn. She would not return to the Lord. In his just judgment, God sent then the armies of Nebuchadnezzar upon the land of Judah to take them out of his land because they desecrated it worse than the heathen. The fierce soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar came into the city and killed most of the young men. They killed the old men and the, and the old women. They killed children and women with babies, and they carried the rest of them off as captives, as slaves. They stripped the temple of its gold and silver and brass and then burned it. They did the same with the king's palace and all of the rich men's houses in Jerusalem. They pulled down the majestic walls of Jerusalem and they set everything ablaze and left the city a heap of smoking rubble. 
God's city, Jerusalem, utterly laid waste. The prophet Jeremiah then stands in the midst of that, and he laments the inspired words of lamentation. He wants the people to know this is from the hand of God. He wants them to know that they must repent. Accordingly, in chapter 3, Jeremiah describes, describes the horrible torments, affliction by the rod of his wrath. He makes that plain immediately. Don't think about the Babylonians. God has done this. It's his rod. It's his wrath that has brought this upon us. And so he describes the horror of his soul, what he's gone through and what the people of God have gone through in this dreadful time. The result is deep despair. He says in verse 18, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord, remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. And yet... There is hope. The church is not utterly destroyed. God's promise is, and Jeremiah had spoken it to the people, there will come a day when a man named Cyrus will let the people come back. You will rebuild Jerusalem. There is hope. And that's the words of the text. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because... His compassions fail not. God's mercy. This verse is the cry of Jeremiah. It can be the cry of any one of God's people, any one of us here tonight. In our trials and afflictions, it can seem as though the hand of the Lord is pressing upon us so hard that we will be crushed by it. We are almost undone. We don't know where to turn. And yet, even as that is true of us, we recognize, but I am a sinner. I sin against God continually. I deserve nothing good from God. I don't deserve any good days. I don't deserve good health or strength or any joys in this life. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve to be cast away from Him. Why am I not? Because of God's mercy. Because of a mercy that is new unto us every morning. So let's consider these verses under that theme. Jehovah's unfailing daily mercy. Jehovah's unfailing daily mercy. Well, notice in the first place the reality of that, His daily mercy. Secondly, the certainty of it, and that's of course found in the verse 23, great is thy faithfulness. That's why it's so certain. And then finally, the tremendous comfort of Jehovah's unfailing daily mercy. Clearly, the important thing in the text is mercy. So we, have, we must spend time understanding what is God's mercy. Mercy is an attribute of God. 
It's part of what makes God to be what He is. If, if it were possible, and it isn't, of course, but if mercy could be taken away from God, He would cease to be God. He is mercy. That's an attribute. And the Bible makes that so plain. And when Moses, in Exodus chapter 34, said to God, May I see thy glory. This is how God answered as God passed by him. God said, The Lord, all capital letters, Jehovah, The Lord God, merciful, that's the first thing he said. I'm going to show you my glory, Moses. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then God went on. But that's how much God emphasized, you want to see my glory? I'm merciful, long-suffering, a God who forgives. That He is merciful, the psalmist sings of that as well. In Psalm 116, verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. And we've sung it in every song that we have sung tonight. God is merciful. If it's an attribute of God, and it is, that means that God is eternally merciful. God's mercy does not begin when God creates man, that now he has an opportunity to be merciful. No, it's an attribute of God. He is eternally merciful so that even when God existed by himself, this was something that characterized God. He's a merciful God. And that means that that attribute of God is something that He displayed within Himself, even apart from us. God is a merciful God within Himself. Mercy is connected with love and grace. They they go together. They flow together out of God. And it's connected often with God giving a blessing. Oftentimes mercy is translated kindness because it is an act that blesses. So when we take that now and apply it to God and and try to understand what this is within God, we understand that God within Himself is a merciful God. And within the Holy Trinity then, it is a determination to bless. The Father is merciful toward the Son. He is determined to seek the blessedness of the Son, His joy, His happiness. The Son is merciful in return to the Father, and He desires and delights in the blessedness of the Father. And so the Son and the Father toward the Spirit, and the Spirit toward the Father and the Son. They seek the blessedness. Each one of the persons of the Trinity delights in the blessedness of the other two persons. God is eternally merciful. It's rooted in love. Because as we'll see, if you think about it, you really can't have mercy towards someone that you don't love. But they're knit together in love. God is love. And God is merciful within Himself. 
But now when we think of mercy, and as the Bible speaks of it, it's always God being merciful toward His people. And He's merciful toward His people when they are in distress. And it's the attribute of God then when He looks at His people in distress and He determines that He's going to lift them up out of their misery and to make them to be blessed. To have them share even in the blessedness of God Himself to convert, convey upon them some of His own joy, His own blessedness. That's mercy. And it isn't merely God's determination to do it, His plan to do it, but because it's part of the attributes of God, mercy is a power that will lift up out of misery and make someone blessed. Again, it's rooted in love. This mercy is particular already in the Old Testament. And we all remember Romans chapter 9, election and reprobation. And God said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And then he follows that up using the other word of the text. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. He doesn't have compassion on everyone. He doesn't have mercy on everyone. But He has mercy on those whom He loves. And He loves those who are eternally in Jesus Christ. Upon them, God has mercy. For Jesus' sake, because He loves His people, God has mercy upon them. Now that comes out in the two words that are found in the text here. In Lamentations chapter 3. There's two different words, mercy and compassion. And one of those words expresses the feeling of mercy, which we could call pity. That's compassion. And the other word for mercy in the text, which is simply mercy, emphasizes the activity of mercy, which is more kindness. So both of those ideas are found here in verse 22. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. Let's start with compassions. Compassions is a feeling of pity. Compassion, the word itself, comes from the Latin, and it means to suffer with. To suffer with. As a father beholds a child in the hospital, and he has compassion upon that child. He's moved by the suffering of that child. He's not looking at the child and saying, oh well, how's he doing today? He, he's affected by that. He has pity. That's the word compassion. A feeling of suffering with those who are in misery. It's a word often translated, tender mercies. Tender mercies. And the word that is, as it wrote, it means to be soft and then to view someone with tender affections. To illustrate that a bit more, it's often connected with the bowels as it was with the two harlots that stood before Solomon and they both were claiming that this baby was theirs and Solomon said, well, then let's just get a sword and cut the baby in half and divide it between the two of them. And we read that the, the bowels of the mother were moved 
yearned upon her child. And she said, no, no, don't kill the baby. She had compassion. Her bowels yearned, we read, upon her child. Jesus also had compassion. When Jesus was laboring, he worked day, a long, long, long day. He finally got settled down in a house late at night. Thought he could rest a little while with his disciples. And someone knocked on the door and there out in front of him were hundreds and hundreds of people with sick and diseased family members and friends. And we read that he had compassion on them. He was moved to pity All of those sick, diseased people. He also had compassion when he saw a funeral procession and a widow woman taking her son to the grave. He had compassion on her and he raised her son from the dead. God has compassion. You all remember Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. In compassion, you read in the Bible, in compassion God forgives his people. Though they deserve judgment, he forgives because of his compassion he feels for us. God's continuing compassion and grace preserves His people. When God withdrew that for a little while, they were sent off into captivity. But He promised He would have mercy upon them again. And He would bring them back into the land of promise. God is a compassionate God. Psalm 86 says He's full of compassion. In Psalm 51, the the psalmist pleads with God... Out of the multitude of thy tender mercies, compassion, forgive my iniquities. So that's one of the words of the text. Compassion, pity. And out of that compassion, God acts. He has Mercy, and the the word mercy emphasizes the activity of God's attribute. It's often translated, as I said, kindness or loving kindness, sometimes even goodness. The same word that's translated mercy in the text. We read that Rahab the harlot in Jericho showed kindness, and it's literally mercy. She showed mercy to the spies that came to her house. A merciful act of kindness is rooted in love, a determination to do good to someone. If someone is in need of help and shows mercy, that mercy is not an obligation. It's not something he's paid to do. It's not something that... Something good has been done to him, so he feels, well, I guess I better help them out. That's not mercy. Mercy is totally unobligated. It's simply a feeling, a desire to be kind, to assist. The result of that mercy is that someone who was suffering is helped. 
Someone is saved from destruction. Someone is saved from sorrow of some kind, lifted up and made to be blessed. Made to be blessed. Happy. This is the mercy that God displays to His people in their distress. It's obvious that Jeremiah is in great distress. It's obvious from the text itself when it says the Lord's, it's of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. They were not living high. They were not living in luxury. They were in terrible trouble. Almost consumed. They had affliction. The church, God's people, face affliction, adversity for many reasons and Many times in their life they experience it because of the hatred of the world. Judah experienced that. Even though God is the one who determined that the Chaldeans would come with their armies and sack the city and kill many of them, they experienced this hatred, bitter hatred of the Chaldean soldiers that would be willing to kill grandpas and grandmas and little babies, throw them off the cliff. Pure hatred. The church is afflicted in times of persecution. God's people also endure troubles and sorrows in life. They are brought low with health afflictions, with sickness and diseases and surgeries. They endure disappointments because friends or family desert them, turn against them, and forsake them. And every one of us deals with death, whether it's the death of someone that we love or our own. God's people deal with death. But the major cause of sorrow in a believer's life, day after day after day, is sin. Because the sin not only violates God's commandments, which are good for us in every way, but the sin is the sin committed against our Heavenly Father, committed by children. Children who have been adopted in Jesus Christ into the family of God. Children who are told, you have an eternal inheritance that I have set for you. Children who are told you have treasures in heaven that I am preserving for you, which can never fade away. And yet those children sin. Turn their back on God. They seek the idols of this world. They seek the earthly treasures instead of the heavenly treasures. They despise God and His Word. God gives them the Bible and says, this is my Word to you. This is my Word that expresses my love for you and the great salvation. And the children say, I'm too busy. I'm not interested in studying the Word of God. They turn their back on fellowship with God and they seek fellowship with the world and they give themselves to all sorts of earthly concerns and pleasures that The entertainment of the world is far more attractive to them even than the worship service on Sunday. The pursuit of money or bodily health and strength. They give themselves to hours of watching YouTube videos or worse, 
And that sin brings them into bondage, slavery, and into misery. They are called to love God with all their being and to love their neighbor. But they are prone to hate God. They are prone to hate the neighbor. They are called to serve God with the whole of their being, their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But they are prone to the opposite, to every kind of iniquity that the world sets before them. They deserve, therefore, the wrath of God, as Israel did. They deserve to be consumed. Why are we not? Because of the Lord's mercies. That's the only reason that you and I are not consumed simply cast into eternal perdition, hell, because of the Lord's mercy. He chastens, he sends sorrow and trouble sometimes for specific sins, sometimes more generally to draw us away from sin and to draw us unto himself. But he brings us sometimes extremely low. And it's only because of His mercy. It's not because there's something good in us, not because we've done something that makes God happy, not because we've fulfilled some kind of a condition that God requires of us. There isn't anything good in us. It's clearly only of God who has determined, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Ultimately, of course, it's because of Jesus Christ that His mercy never leaves us. Read in Psalm 89 how God establishes His covenant of grace with His Son. And He establishes that covenant with His Son and with all those who are in His Son, all the elect. And God says in Psalm 89, when His children, when the children of Jesus Christ, when we sin, He will chasten us. But He says immediately after, I will never take My mercy away from Him, from Jesus. It will never leave Him. And because it will never leave Jesus, it will never leave us. That's why it will never be taken away. And that mercy continues exactly because we are in Christ and because He took the penalty of our sins and He paid for our sins. Therefore, the mercy of God and His compassions fail not. And yet God is so good to us that in this text He will reassure that He will drive that message home that His mercies cannot fail. And that's because, you see, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you or on me. But it's because of His faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness is His steadfastness. 
His steadfastness. The word in the Hebrew actually has its, its root, the word that we use in our prayer, every single prayer, the word Amen. The word Amen is, is at the heart of the word faithfulness. And it means that it is something secure, something established, something certain. And that's why when Jesus was teaching, and He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, what He really was saying is, Amen, Amen, I say to you. So the Heidelberg Catechism, when it explains to us, why do we conclude all our prayers with the word Amen? It says, well, it's because the word Amen means it shall truly and surely be. It's something absolutely certain. That's, that's embedded in the word faithfulness. Something secure. The Bible emphasizes that God is a faithful God. In Psalm 36 verse 5 it says, God's faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In Psalm 119 verse 90 it says, Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. It doesn't stop. It goes on and on and on to all generations. And that faithfulness is tied to the name that is used in the text, the name Lord in capital letters, which means it's Jehovah. That emphasizes the security, the certainty of God, because Jehovah means I am that I am. And right away it tells us this is a God who always was. This is a God who does not change. This is a God who will always be there, absolutely faithful, because He is the I Am that I Am. He is firm. He is steadfast. He is immovable. He is a God who is truth and cannot lie. You can trust Him. Whatever God says, that is truth. Because He is Jehovah. He cannot change. He cannot lie. He is steadfast. This faithfulness, of course, God revealed in Jesus, whose very name means Jehovah salvation. But you see it in, as, as God promised already immediately after the fall, the seed of the woman, the seed that He later said He promised would come from Abraham's seed, and then from the tribe of Judah, and then from the line of David, this seed of the woman that would sit upon the throne of David, that would establish God's covenant, that would redeem Israel from all her iniquity. And Jesus did all that. He demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt the faithfulness of God as He fulfilled every last word. He revealed the Father. He revealed the Father's love and mercy in His life and in His death. He redeemed Israel, that is to say the church, from her iniquity, taking upon Himself the guilt of the church, willing to take the punishment of their sins upon Himself and pay for them all until it was finished. 
He accomplished the fullness of the salvation of the church. God is faithful. And the faithfulness of God is set forth concretely in the life, the death, the victory of Jesus Christ. God kept His word. Every promise. And because of that, because of that astounding faithfulness, you can be sure His compassions do not fail. His mercy is new unto us every morning. Scripture emphasizes that by connecting, interestingly, mercy and truth. Many places we sang of it. And here in Psalm 25, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep His covenant. Psalm 100, which I use to introduce the service, verse 5, For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. Thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and Thy truth unto the clouds, Psalm 57. God will maintain both His mercy and His truth. In His mercy, He will lift up, He will pity, He will bless But He will maintain His truth. And the truth is about Him. That He is God. That He is the Almighty One. That He is the only Savior. He will maintain both His mercy and His truth. So when God says, I will save you, He will and He does. God's mercy will never fail because God is faithful because He is truth. He promised He would never leave you. He promised that. I will never forsake you. He promised that He will uphold you by His power. You must never think for a moment that God fails. He is truth. He is truth faithfulness. Verse 23 says that God's faithfulness is great. And it is. Let me try to show the, the greatness of the faithfulness of our God. In the first place, God's faithfulness is great when you look at the objects of God's mercy and of His faithfulness. And the first thing you notice about the objects of God's mercy is that that they are insignificant as compared to God. Insignificant. He is the Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He upholds a universe. We've never even come to the end of that universe. It is so vast. It is so massive. And yet down here on this planet earth are these little specks of dust And God is mindful of every single one of His people. A man may say to his wife, I will be faithful to you. And reasonably keep that promise. A man may say to his children, I will be faithful to you. I'll take care of you and be reasonably capable of doing that. But if a man would say to a colony of ants. I'm going to take care of all the ants here. Hundreds of thousands of ants. If for a few days he went on vacation and he ignored the ants, 
who would blame him. And if he lost track of two or three hundred ants, we would expect that. The difference between a man and an ant is nothing compared to the difference between God and us. And yet God never forsakes. He never neglects. He never goes on vacation and and comes back and says, well, how are my people doing today? He's always faithful in His care of His people. It's faithfulness is great. And then not only when you look at the objects of His faithfulness, is it a matter of insignificance as we are, but it's our unworthiness. Every single day we forfeit the right for God, uh, to have God be faithful to us. We sin against Him. We defile His commandments and we turn our backs upon Him. If a king would take a peasant girl, a poor peasant girl, out of her poverty and make her to be his queen, but then she kept running away from him after other lovers, we would say, you can get rid of her. But if he would keep going after her, taking her back into the palace, receiving her back as his wife, we would say, that man is very faithful to his wife. God, his faithfulness to us, unworthy sinners, is great. Not only because we're insignificant, but because we're so unworthy. The greatness of God's faithfulness is evident also in that it cost him A man can be a soldier in the king's army and say, I'm faithful to the king. I'm a faithful soldier. But if he never has to be called for war, then he dies and we don't really know how faithful he was. But a man who's a, a soldier in the king's army who has to go off and fight and he leaves his family behind for months and even years and even gives his life in the battle for the king, we would say that soldier is faithful. God is faithful. To demonstrate and to maintain His faithfulness, He gave His own Son, His only begotten Son, into this world to be spit upon, to be mocked and humiliated, and to take the guilt of His people upon Him and to bear the wrath of God, an eternity of wrath, an infinite amount of wrath, poured out upon His own Son, God is faithful. His faithfulness is great. It cost Him tremendously. And then, thirdly, you look at the objects and see how unworthy and how insignificant you see of what it cost God. But then there's the duration This faithfulness of God is eternal. This faithfulness of God is not something that's a minor thing, a little while. It lasts through the entirety of your life and it lasts into eternity. God will never in eternity say, well, I'm kind of tired of these people. I know I promised them an eternal life, but but I'm not going to keep it. God will never do that. His faithfulness is great.
And there is, therefore, for us, tremendous comfort. And that comfort, to me, is expressed in the words that those mercies and those compassions are new every morning. That's quite something. It's beautiful the way that the Word of God puts that. It's not that God promised to a believer when He saves a believer, I have this huge supply of mercy for you. It will last you all your life long. That would be amazing enough. Or that God would say, don't don't worry about what happens in the future. Whenever you need my mercy, you just call upon me and that I'll give you mercy. That would be astounding enough. But this says, the mercies are new every morning. New every morning. And now I'll call attention to the fact that the plural is used here. Mercies and compassions. And that, first of all, emphasizes that there's a multitude of here. We're not looking at a small amount of mercy. And then secondly, that there are mercies and compassions emphasizes that it is given to the individual in that circumstance. A man who loses his wife... The Lord takes the wife to glory, needs mercy. A mercy just for him in that circumstance. Different from a a couple that has their baby in the hospital. They need mercy too, but a, a different kind of mercy. And no matter what the affliction is, no matter what the sorrow is, there is a mercy and a compassion exactly fit for that. Mercy and compassion's new every morning. That's a great comfort to us who are sinners, every one of us. Because our sins are never going to go away. Not as long as we live in this world. We carry our corrupt nature with us every step of the way. We are prone to wander. We're prone to plunge ourselves into the bondage of sin. And therefore to bring God's wrath and judgment upon us. God promises, but my mercy is new to you every day. God forgives. He may chastise, but He never takes His mercy away. It is new every morning. Whatever the trouble the child of God faces, and every congregation sees it, you see people with cancer, see people with heart trouble, you see people that face death and have to deal with the death of those whom they love. And God sends mercy that is suited to each sorrow and each trial. We know as we face the end of the world that the world will unite in its hatred against the church and will do everything it can to kill every single last believer. Every single one. We can expect imprisonment. We can expect torture. We can expect death. 
but the mercy of God will be there. That's His promise. It will be new unto us every morning, carrying us through the day. You confess that? Maybe you wonder. You think, but I've been through some trials where I didn't feel that mercy. Maybe you're in a trial now and you're not feeling the mercy of God new unto you every day. Well, let me tell you that God understands and believers understand because listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 77. He was under affliction and he said, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean, gone forever? Doth His promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath He in anger shut up His tender mercies? The child of God can feel like I, I'm not, I'm not experiencing God's mercy. I'm not experiencing God lifting me up. I have this affliction, this sorrow, this horrible trial in my life that just goes on and on and on. And there doesn't seem to be the end. So how do you reconcile Psalm 77 and what can be our experience with Lamentations, which says God's mercies are new every morning. How can we understand that? We understand it when we remember what mercy is. God's determination to bless. He's determined to bless His people. And He's determined, in fact, to bring each one of His people to the highest blessedness that that saint can endure, that that saint can enjoy. The highest blessedness possible for that saint and that saint and that saint for each one of God's people. God is determined to do that. God uses affliction to shape and mold us for that place of absolute blessedness in heaven. He will bless us now. He will make us to share in the blessedness and the joy of salvation now. But ultimately, it's that place that He has determined. And it's the afflictions that linger, that God uses the most. You had a broken leg, terrible break, but it was healed in a couple of days. Wouldn't make much of an impression on you, would it? You'd soon forget it. If you were diagnosed with cancer, but after a couple of treatments it was all gone and you felt great, it wouldn't make much of an impression on you, would it? 
But when it lingers, and it goes on months and years, God is using that to mold you and shape you, ultimately for your greatest blessing. That's, that's not just me talking. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But what we don't realize is that mercy of God was there the whole time. It was holding us up. It is a power. It's a power that will not let us go. It's a power that does not let us simply throw it all away and say it's not worth it anymore to be a Christian. Why should I endure this? It's a power that preserves and shapes us and molds us for the greatest blessing far greater than anything we can imagine. But His mercy is there. The psalmist in Psalm 77 wasn't conscious of it. Sometimes we're not either. So we need to remember the words. They are new unto us every morning. God's mercy never fails. That's the tremendous comfort. We live out of that mercy. We really do. We worship out of that. I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercies. Of course, when we are forgiven and we're blessed with that forgiveness, we long to worship God. Mercy brings us to trust in God. How excellent is thy loving kindness, thy mercy, O God. Therefore, therefore, under the shadow of thy wings, the children of men put their trust. Personal witness. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness, mercy, and thy truth. And it's what brings us to praise God. We'll sing of that in a few moments. In Psalm 89, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will. That's our comfort. That's our strength. No matter what our trial, we don't go marching through life saying, look how strong I am. But it's that mercy of God. The mercies that are new unto us every morning. Thank God for His mercy. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy faithfulness to us. That the certainty of that means we will always be the objects of Thy mercy. That Thou dost have compassion, pity upon us in our suffering. And that Thou dost even delay sometimes 
the relief of the suffering because thou hast determined a greater blessing for us than we can imagine. We thank thee. We pray that thou wilt bind this word to our hearts so that we know every day that thy mercy is new unto us. All this because of our blessed Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.